0: Thank you for listening, but please be advised that I don't just believe shit I hear on podcasts, and I hope you don't either. Be skeptical and look into things for yourself. If you find that I was wrong about something, the best thing you could do for me is to let me know. You can do that at livingthreorextinction at gmail.com. Please also be aware of the fact that I do swear and I don't bleep anything out. So listener discretion is advised. (music) This is episode eight zero of Living Through Extinction, a short to the point podcast with science and skepticism, environment and wildlife, and stuff I find cool that I want to learn more about. Today I'll be talking about how Kirk Cameron is once again being deceitful in order to play the poor persecuted Christian card, a breakthrough in heating and cooling technology, the shortening lifespans of honeybees, and the Voynich Manuscript. If you are interested in supporting the show, all the possible ways are listed after the final segment and thank yous. If you've joined me before, then thank you for returning. I seriously appreciate you. If this is your first time listening to Living Through Extinction, welcome. I hope you find it both fun and informative. While there are other sources, most of the following came from OnlySky.net. There are a couple of links in the show notes. If you care at all about the separation of church and state in North America, I highly recommend signing up for Hemet Meta's blog at OnlySky. So, that fuckface Kirk Cameron has been at it again poor, persecuted, anti-LGBT creationist. The big, mean libraries won't let him read his book in their buildings. Except that is in no way an accurate statement. That's the impression he's been giving, but there's a whole lot more to that story. This episode comes out in March, so I should probably mention that this occurred a few months ago in December. Kirk Cameron is a known pusher of bigotry and misinformation, though in some cases I swear that he actually knows better, which would make it deliberate disinformation. He's put out a faith-based children's book, which suggests to kids that they cannot be moral without believing in his God. This from a person who calls drag storytimes times grooming. Are you fucking kidding me? He wants to tell young children that they should all be like him and follow his God, and otherwise they can't ever really be good. And he wants to share a story about exclusion and shame. What the fuck? Meanwhile, Drag story Times tell stories about inclusion and acceptance. They have a, this is me and you are you, and we should all be open and honest about who we really are and respect others who do the same attitude. They are not telling kids how to be, or what to be, or what to believe, or that they can't be good if they don't do what they say. Out of these two situations, the very obvious groomer slash indoctrinator is fucking Cameron. Now, what you should understand about libraries is that there are different types of events held at them. There are the library-hosted and promoted events, which are generally for high-end authors and books, which are expected to be very popular. The library will make and put up posters for these events and promote them on social medias, stuff like that. Library staff will actually be used to set things up, clean up, take care of things as the event is occurring. The library takes on a good chunk of the responsibility and expense in these cases. Then there are rooms, halls, auditoriums, which can be rented by literally anyone. So if an author wanted to read a bigoted Christian book, and yes, this is bigotry, Teaching kids that non-Christians cannot be moral is absolutely bigotry. If an author wants to read a book like this to kids and is turned down when a room is available because they don't rent to Christians, that would be discrimination. And I guarantee you that isn't happening anywhere. The libraries contacted about Kirk Cameron's book had no interest in hosting and catering to him and his people for a book they really didn't think would be very popular. He was, of course, informed that there were rooms he would be welcome to rent if he wanted to have his reading at their locations. But Kirk Cameron wanted to be able to cry persecution. So instead of saying, great, thanks, and renting a room like a normal person, he set off to tell the world that these libraries have drag story hour and LGBT-friendly events, yet are, his words, censoring him. He made the claim that these libraries refused to let him in their buildings to read his Christian-based book to kids. And of course, this bullshit is riling up his far-right followers against libraries even more than they already are. Side note, how long do y'all think it'll be before Christian nationalists start burning down libraries? Their enemy is information and truth, so libraries are going to have to either go or be controlled. Anyway, the reply Cameron's publisher Brave Books received from the Rochambeau Public Library in Providence, Rhode Island, was incredibly reasonable. Well, reasonable to reasonable people, anyway. Quote, No, we will pass on having you run a program in our space. We are a very queer-friendly library. Our messaging does not align. You can fill out the form to reserve space to run the program in our space, but we won't run your program. That's reasonable. That is not censorship. And guess what? They have every right to be a queer-friendly space if they so choose. Why would anyone expect that they would have to spend staff time on them? Why would someone expect that they would have to promote their event? If a book is not being requested, if there is no indication that it will be popular, if there is no indication that there will be a good turnout, they turn people down all the time. Those people rent rooms, as Cameron was told he could do. But he thinks he should be special. He wants a free space, catered by them, and promoted by them. And when they rightly said no, he cried censorship and his publisher was no better. Regarding the nose, Brave Books made the claim that the libraries were not allowing the Bible to be taught to children. Dude, you could have rented a room. You said no. None of the libraries have any issues having it on their shelves to be taken out by those who wish to read it. So there is no censorship. But of course, right-wing nut jobs are really running with this one. Oh, us poor persecuted Christians, whatever is happening to this country. And then, in January, I think, there was an update on the whole Kirk Cameron bullshit. He really wanted to do a reading in a library, so he and his publishers caved and rented a room. They chose one at the Indianapolis Public Library and hosted their own event, which they could have done at any time instead of falsely crying censorship. Then... The publicity people at Brave Books made up numbers to put out into the world. Seriously, it's clearer every day that American Christian equals dishonest. Why? What is the purpose of lying about these things? To quote their tweet, This is a message to every library in the United States in 137 years of Indianapolis Public Library's history. Never once, never once is in capital letters, y'all, Never once have they had over 2,500 people show up to a single event. And again, capital letters, until today, unquote. The next big lie about the event came from Cameron himself. His quote, sadly, this beautiful library has a large auditorium that seats over 2,000 people, but leadership never offered it to us or even told us about it, unquote. Wow, so much bullshit in those two statements. First of all, the library wouldn't have told anyone about their rooms. Cameron's people would have gone to the website or picked up a flyer, looked at what was available, and called to reserve their choice. They literally got the room that they asked for. Second, the auditorium, which does exist, holds 300 people. Not 2,000, as Cameron claims. And anyone can either go there in person or go to their website and see that as fact. As for the claims made by the publisher, again, wow! There were not 2,500 people in attendance. The estimated headcount was 750. They have to track these things for fire safety purposes. In the library's social media, in response to Brave Book's claim of the largest number of people at the library in 137 years history? Well, it was simply put, quote, we've had larger, unquote. Their social media also explains that they will actually be 150 in 2023. So the 137 year number was also incorrect. Like where did they even get it from? It's like they have so little respect for their base. Like they expect the people listening to them to be so unintelligent that they know they can just pull numbers out of their asses and everyone who already follows them will believe them. And anyone who tries to correct those people will be told they're brainwashed by the liberal media. How sad is it that they're right? Oh, And when Cameron got called out on his lies, of course he deleted his tweet but never acknowledged that he had been wrong in any way. Just deleted the tweet. That's a huge red flag for dishonesty. These people are promoting a book that says only people like them are moral. As they lie over and over and over again. Even their own book that they claim tells them how to act tells them not to fucking do that. They desperately want to be seen as persecuted. Don't let people get away with this shit. If someone you know is sharing that libraries are not allowing God to be taught, but allow drag story time, call them on those statements. Tell them all the ways they've been lied to. Tell them not to believe you, but to go to the information pages on the libraries themselves. It would be almost impossible for Christians to be persecuted in the United States. They are the majority. They make up the majority of Congress. They make up pretty much all of the Supreme Court. You make the rules, bitches. The great majority of the time when American Christians cry persecution, it's total bullshit. Look into their claims, because it is almost never what they are making it out to be. Be skeptical, damn it. While there are other sources out there, most of my information for this one came from ZME Science. I'm not 100% sure if I've wrapped my head around some parts of this yet, so bear with me. Ionic caloric cooling is a way of changing temperature with the use of ionic motion. When materials go from one phase to another, heat is either absorbed or released by the substance. Using water as an example, if a solid chunk of ice is left out to melt, as it becomes water it is absorbing heat from all around its mass. When water is left in a cold environment to freeze, it is releasing heat into the environment. The idea of using ionic motion to heat and cool has been around for a while but was not considered feasible but physicist researchers from the Department of Energy's Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory in the United States believe that they have proven it could indeed be feasible. The ionocaloric device is used to cause the phase change with the flow of ions. That's electrically charged atoms or molecules. Apparently, when an electric field is applied to a material, ions within that material experience a force and begin to move. This movement causes a change in the material's entropy, which leads to the change in its temperature. So by applying and removing the electric field in a controlled manner, the ionochloric effect is being used to produce either heating or cooling. How is this electric field applied and removed? I'm still not clear about that part. I would expect it must use some sort of electricity, but that's not necessarily true. Apparently their method can heat and cool very quickly and can cover a wide range of temperatures. This method is not dependent on the greenhouse gases we use today to cool things down, and there are no moving parts, so pretty much maintenance-free. This is just a tiny beginning. The goal, as research moves forward, will be to come up with something that makes things cold in a safe, efficient way that does not do damage to the environment. And the researchers are confident that the potential is there with this method to meet every one of these goals. We may have some good news when it comes to the shortening lifespan of the honeybee. According to entomologists, honeybees live a 50% shorter life today than they did in the 70s. Of course, the presumption has always been human intervention, such as pesticides and clearing away habitats. But when all of these things were controlled for, the bees still had the same shorter lifespans. Entomologists at the University of Maryland say everything is pointing to a genetic factor being the cause. You see, Evolution isn't smart. Sometimes a bad mutation gets through. If a bee is still allowed to reach the age of procreation, then that bad gene can continue to be passed on. If they turn out to be right, then this is very good news for the honeybees and for us. If it is a genetic factor and they can identify it, we have the technology to fix that today. Next on the agenda is to isolate the genetic parts causing the shortened lives so that they can be bred for longevity in the future. The researchers plan to look at bees throughout the country, comparing longevity and looking for the differences in their genetics that lead to those factors. The study published about how they got to the point of determining the decline in longevity was not environmental is in scientific reports. For this episode, I decided to look a bit into something that's always been a bit fascinating to me, the Voynich Manuscript. There was brief excitement when someone declared they had solved it in 2017, but I should have been more skeptical than excited when that news came out. It turned out to be malarkey, which I'll get to in a bit. First, not everyone knows about it, so what is the Voynich Manuscript? It is a 234-page book for which historical mentions can be found as far back as the 17th century, though radioactive dating puts it as originating in the 15th century. It is 22.5 centimeters by 16 centimeters, contains numerous illustrations, and has been called the world's most mysterious book. The earliest mention I came across was in the library of the Holy Roman Emperor Rudolf II. It was the 17th century when he purchased it for 600 ducats, which is what they called their gold coin currency. Apparently he bought it believing it was the work of a known English philosopher named Roger Bacon, but that possibility was debunked centuries later when the radioactive dating put it no earlier than the 15th century. Bacon lived in the 1200s. The next note of the book is in 1903, the Society of Jesus in Rome had it in one of their book sales. Then there's no mention of it again until 1912. This is when it gets the name we know it by today, the Voynich Manuscript, after the rare book dealer who rediscovered it, Wilfred Voynich. Since 1969, it's been on display at Yale University. Now, after all that, you might be wondering what the big deal is. Well, this book has never been translated. The language has never been deciphered. The intricate drawings of the plant section? As far as we know, not one of them has ever existed. The constellations drawn? None familiar to our Earth's point of view. World War II cryptologists have taken cracks at it. Art historians have examined it. Intelligence specialists have tried their hands at it. Scholars from all sorts of different specialties have examined it for decades. Mathematicians, medieval philosophers, linguists, chemists, forensic specialists, Historical and cryptographic professionals. Everyone has failed. Unknown script, unknown author, unknown plants. It's kind of an awesome mystery, right? Is it a lost language containing extinct plants we haven't found fossils of? But we have pretty thorough records of the plants that existed in the 15th century. But maybe this person was isolated somewhere where people didn't go. Maybe they saw plants nobody else ever did. But the way everything is labeled, were they out there with equipment to examine all these plants? Is it a prank? Did someone create it as a fraud and claiming it had been acquired from a faraway land? How hard would that be at that time, really? There was no way to check into these types of claims. Of course, you can go look at images of the Voynich manuscript for yourself online, but I'm going to describe it anyway. The colours in the book are green, brown, yellow, blue, and red, and the drawings enclosed appear to have six specific sections. The first is botany. This is the largest section containing 113 detailed and appearingly labeled plant and herb species, none of which have ever been identified. The next 12 pages appear to contain astronomy and astrology themes. Here we have charts with suns and moons on them. There are also pictures of a bull and an archer, known astrological signs. And then there's the images of the nude woman in pipes. I don't know if I get how that fits the astronomy astrology theme, but okay. The next section appears to be about biology. It contains miniature nudes of women, most of which appear to be pregnant, and women immersed in some sort of fluids with weird interconnecting tubes and capsules. It's some weird shit, man. The cosmology section contains drawings of nine medallions. Apparently, there are possible but not identified geographic formations within the drawings. Then we have even more plants with the pharmaceutical section. This part has over 100 drawings of plants, herbs, and roots, along with jars and other vessels to hold components. The difference in this section is that the plant drawings are decipherable and they are known medicinal plants. But of course, none of the writing in this section has ever been figured out. The rest of the book is just page after page of text with little star-like flowers marking each entry in the margins. There has been speculation that the way it's laid out suggests it may be a series of recipes, but again, We have no translation to confirm any of that. And that's the Voynich manuscript. But in case you go to look into it and the first thing you come across is that it's been solved, that is actually not correct. As I mentioned earlier, I got excited when the news first came out that someone claimed to have solved the Voynich manuscript, but I should have held off on that excitement and been more skeptical. History researcher Nicholas Gibbs declared that the odd script was made up of a bunch of Latin abbreviations, and he published an article in the Times Literary Supplement claiming to have cracked the code. To prove this, he provided two lines of translation. Two lines! He also made claims that the book once had an index which would have proven him to be right if found, as it provided the key to the abbreviations. He said all this without providing any explanation as to how he came to any of these conclusions. We know the book is missing a few pages, but he just extrapolated that fact to fit his abbreviation narrative. Another claim he said proved his point was that he now knew it was about women's health, but that wasn't anything new. Many people over the decades, many people before him, have had the same thought. Obviously based on the images, not on the text. Within days of his article coming out, scholars from all departments were able to debunk his claims. Not one medievalist has concurred with his supposed translation. Nobody in Latin studies agrees with the Latin abbreviations. People who actually read medieval Latin say he's full of shit. Okay, they're actually more polite than that, but what they say equivalates to he's full of shit. Medieval Academy of America director Lisa Fagan Davis said that she was surprised the Gibbs' article was published at all. She said if it had first been sent to the Benwick Library at Yale, where the manuscript is kept and studied, it would have been rebuted immediately. She said Gibbs' supposed analysis was, quote, a mix of stuff we already knew and stuff he couldn't possibly prove, unquote. And that's not science, folks. So the Voynich Manuscript continues to fascinate and continues to be examined today. Maybe one day we'll have an answer, but for now it's a fun mystery. Now if you haven't done so yet, go Google some pics. It's very cool. Vonyce is spelt V-O-Y N I C H. I don't have a positive for this week, so I'm gonna share a funny story. I think it's a funny story. We'll see what you think, I guess. There are two important things to know going into this story. One, the woman of the household next door to us when I was in my teens was rather uptight. Two, my parents had their issues, but were not uptight at all. It was not unusual for my guy friends from Winnipeg, Grand, and Bel Air to spend the weekend at my place. They slept in the basement. It was fine. Though I often felt left out at bedtime because they would get to chat as they fell asleep, and I was stuck going up to my room to fall asleep all alone. Anyway, the uptight neighbor would see my mom and be all, there were boys at your house when you were working yesterday. And my mom would be all, I, yes, they're staying over. What's the problem? So that's the background. I believe it was the very early 90s and my boyfriend from Winnipeg and a guy friend from Grand Beach were spending the weekend so we could all go to a local grad social together. We had plenty to drink and my boyfriend and I were ready to call it quits and walk back to my place. When we tried to get our third party, let's call him Carl, when we tried to get Carl to leave with us, he waved us off calling us party poopers. When we left, he was drinking with a girl he'd met that night. He knew where I lived. We had no concerns. When we got up the next morning, Carl had not returned. But whatever, right? We figured he ended up going home with the person he'd been drinking with when we left. Then sometime later, Carl walks in the back door of my house and is yelling for me and my boyfriend. Funny yelling, not actual angry yelling. He's pointing at us and going, you both left me. And we're like, yeah, dumbass, you didn't want to come with us. It turns out Carl did not go home with that woman he met the night before. At some point in the night after we left, he decided to come home. But he was really, really hammered. He knew where I lived, but ended up coming at my place from a weird way, through a yard on the next street, through some bushes, and finally over a fence, just like ours. After falling over the fence, he looked up at what appeared to be our house, so he was all, yes, I made it! He approached the house, opened the door, which was not locked, and stumbled down the stairs, which were right where he expected them to be, directly on the other side of the back door. He then found the couch, right where it was supposed to be, and passed out. Carl woke up in the morning with a small dog sitting on his chest and checking him out. His first thought was, boob doesn't have a dog. He then looked around him and saw a stereo system, so his next thought was, boob doesn't have a stereo system, just an old TV. Oh, shit. I haven't described Carl, but he was tall and in a post-drunken state, looked pretty rough. He put on his biggest smile, put his hands out in front of him, and climbed the stairs, but turned at the exit and entered to the kitchen, where he opened with, I'm harmless, I promise, could someone please just tell me where I am? To my uptight neighbor, he said she looked horrified, but the others there seemed amused. He muttered something to the effect of, I'm going to kill Brian and Ruby. And the father of the house looked up and went, oh, you're from next door. I grew up in a bay house. My dad worked for the bay and they provided houses for cheap rent to their employees. The house next to us was also a bay house. And the two were built at the same time and with the same plans. Other than some darker edging on one and how they were decorated inside by the different families, both houses are the same. I don't think that the neighbor lady was very happy with us after that. She was probably all, it figures he came from that house. My dad worked with her husband at the bay and kept singing some song to him called A Stranger in My House to tease him. Me and my family thought it was one of the funniest things in the world. And that's all I've got for this closet session. There will be a new episode in two weeks and I continue to put out those weekly short videos on YouTube. Thank you for listening. May your health and sanity continue to be replenished daily. Thank you so much to the following people who have helped me to make the show into what it is. Jason Martin for helping me get started on this project three years ago. I wouldn't be doing this right now if not for him. Kathy Rayner for her musical contribution on the violin. Paul Palmer for his musical contribution on the guitar. He can be found at WPG Suitcase Drummer on Instagram. Dustin Harder for composing and recording the intro and outro for the show. You can find him on Instagram at Prairie Soul Music. And finally, thank you to my family. They really do rock. I hope you will choose to join me again in two weeks for episode 81 of Living Through Extinction. If you enjoy Living Through Extinction and would like to support the show, the best ways to do so are to subscribe and rate, and to comment and like positive comments on your favorite podcast player. Or you can help out by following, liking, and sharing on all the social medias. The show can be found under Living Through Extinction on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and TikTok, and under LTE Pod on Twitter and Hive. The YouTube is finally active under Living Through Extinction, but I just put up weekly very short videos there for now. There is also a Patreon at patreon.com livingthroughextinction. There you can earn stickers, pins, masks, and more, as well as help me to plant some trees. If you have any comments, corrections, questions, or suggestions, please email them to livingthroughextinction at gmail.com or message me through one of the social medias.